Dear God, the, the candle flickers. A reminder of the mighty third person of the Godhead who hovers over this worshiping community. When the children of God cry out, Alleluia, Hallelujah, praise to Yahweh, praise to the Lord. It is a cry elicited by the moving of the Spirit. So our hearts are already moved. As we move into Bible teaching, let it be clear, dear God, we must get this straight. In Jesus' name, amen. So here's the question for you. How would you like to have a prophet living next door to you? Huh? You say, well, it just depends on which prophet you're talking about. All right, let me run one by you. How about Jeremiah? Say, wait a minute. I mean, are you talking about Jeremiah? Is that the one that they call the weeping prophet? Listen, I sleep with my windows open at night. I, I couldn't handle a night where I'm hearing the sobbing of a man next door. No way. All right. How about John the Baptist? You talking about the guy that... Yeah, no, we can't have somebody running around, running around our neighborhood dressed in camel hair and munching on locusts. We've got social decor where we live. Forget it. All right. How about Jonah? See the prophet that ran away? Yep. Well, he'd be fine because he'd never be home. You got that one. <laughs> How about Isaiah? Hey, wait a minute. Wasn't Isaiah the prophet that God commanded to walk buck naked through Jerusalem to make a theological point? We got ordinances around here in this village. No streaking in our block. All right. How about Deborah? Oh, you're talking about Deborah the prophetess, right? Yep, Deborah the prophetess. Hey, you know what? She'd be a fine woman to have next door, but I tell you what, I'm not really big on women who wear the pants in the family, so. How about Noah? You're talking about Noah the Ark, Noah? Yeah, Noah the Ark, Noah. To be candid with you, hanging around somebody who hangs around that many animals and keeps preaching the end of time, we don't need an end time zoo around our place. No, I don't need Noah. Okay? How about Jesus? Ah, now there, there, there is a capital P prophet I would love to have next door. If he can just quit hanging around those riffraff and the poor and those out-of-town prostitutes and fishermen who keep parking on my lawn. Ladies and gentlemen, the question already is clear. Aren't you like having a prophet living next door? Nobody wants a prophet next door. You know why? Because they're strange. We've got enough crazies around here as it is. That's the way Israel felt about prophets. Let me put a line on the screen. Don't look it up. I'll put it from the book of Hosea, chapter 9, verse 7, on the screen. NIV, God speaking, the days of punishment are coming. The days of reckoning are at hand. Let Israel know this, because your sins are so many and your hostility so great. The prophet is considered a fool and the inspired man a maniac. Title of today's teaching, of maniacs and fools and other such gifts. Because nobody ever dreams of growing up to be a prophet someday. Open your Bible with me, please, to the writing of a very human prophet. Take a look at this. Open your Bible, please, to the book of Jeremiah. We're going to do some brooding, you and I, over seven stages in the life cycle of a prophet. Let's go to the, the prophet Jeremiah, the one you didn't want to live next door to you. That Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 1, we'll pick it up. By the way, you didn't, bring a, you didn't bring a Bible, grab the pew Bible in front of you. You need to track this in Jeremiah, these seven stages. It'll be page 506 in your Bible. 
Seven stages. Stage number one. Trust me in advance. You don't want to be one. Not a prophet. Jeremiah. I'm going to be here in the New King James Version. Jeremiah chapter 1. We'll pick it up in verse 4. Then the word of the Lord came to me saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I sanctified you. I ordained you a prophet to the nations. Hit the pause button right there. You need to know, by the way, my friend, that even though you weren't born to be a prophet, this line is just as true for you. Do you know what God looked down the day you got conceived in your mother's tummy? And he said, I got a dream for that man. I have a dream for that eventual woman. So here's the question. Are you living out your dream right now or are you living out God's dream? The whole goal of life is to align your dream with God's destiny. When you get those aligned, that's called the sweet spot. That's the crosshairs. I want to tell you this. You can about go through anything in this life if you know you are doing what God raised you up to do. Let me read that again. Verse 4. Then the word of the Lord came to me saying, verse 5, Before I formed you in the womb... I knew you. Before you were born, I sanctified you. I ordained you a prophet to the nations. There it is, ladies and gentlemen, stage number one. Take out your study guide. Let's write it out. Let's jot down all seven of these stages. Study guide, please. It's in your worship bulletin. Pull it out. If you didn't get a study guide, here come our ushers. Happy to give you one. Hold your hand up. That goes for up in the balcony as well. Put your hand up. That goes for overflow. Those of you watching an overflow right now, glad you're here. Hold your hand up. We'll get a study guide to you. Everybody gets a study guide today. You're going to want these seven stages of a prophet's life cycle. And those of you who are joining us right now on television, we're delighted to have you. I hope this teaching today will bless you as well. You can get the same study guide. In fact, let me put our website on the screen. And when you go to that website, there it is. You see it on the screen. www.pmchurch.tv Go to that, go to that website, please. You're looking for the series, The Gift. This is the gift part three. If you didn't hear part two and part one, they're all there already at the website waiting for you. The podcast, the video cast, you can download it, watch it at your leisure. But the teaching for part three, the, the teaching is of maniacs and fools and other such gifts. When you see that title, it says study guide, click. You'll have the same study guide as we do. Okay, let's go. Seven stages of the life cycle of a prophet. Stage number one. Write it down, please. God calls a man or a woman to deliver a divine message to his people. All right. You write in man or a woman. God calls a man or a woman to deliver a divine message to his people. Do you remember our teaching from last week? Let me put the verse up again. Don't look it up. Amos chapter 3, verse 7. Surely the Lord God does nothing. Unless he reveals his secret to his servants, the prophets. Every major chapter in salvation history is preceded by God raising up a prophet to prepare the people for the impending event. Noah, the flood. Moses, the exodus. Jeremiah, the exile. God does nothing without telling his secrets to the prophets who then pass it on to the rest of us. But what comes as a surprise to some people, get this, is the discovery... That the gift of prophecy, God's prophetic office, is not limited by gender. It's transgender. In fact, women serve. In the Bible, they're called prophetesses. Get your pen moving. Let me just run a few. These aren't all of them, but let me run a few by you. Some famous women prophetesses. If we put that on the screen, please. 
Women who God called, here that we go. Number one, Deborah. Write down, no, number one is a Miriam, excuse me. This is, the, this is the older sister of Moses. We'll get to Deborah in a moment. But Miriam was a prophetess. Every text behind the name calls the woman a prophetess. All right? Number one is Miriam. Number two is Deborah. Number three is Huldah. She was a prophetess during the reign of King Josiah in Judah. Number four is Anna. You remember the Christmas story? Old ladies, what was it, 80-some-year-old Anna, she was a prophetess, recognized the Christ child. And even in the book of Acts, the daughters of Philip, Acts 21 says they had the gift of prophecy. So, stage number one, what are we looking at? We're looking at the life cycle stages of a prophet. Number one, God calls a man or he calls a woman to deliver a divine message to God's people. The German scholar Gerhard von Rath, back in the 20th century, Got two books in my library of his, Old Testament Theology. In this two-volume series, he describes the implications of a prophet's divine calling. You got this in your study guide. You'll have to fill it in, in fact. Let's read. This is Von Rod writing here. The picture we see is of a man appointed to hear the Word of God. As a result of this divine call, he surrenders much of his freedom. I'm telling you, you don't want to grow up and be a prophet. Don't ask for it. He surrenders much of his freedom. Occasionally... He is completely overwhelmed by an external compulsion. But paradoxically, just because he has received this call, he's able to enjoy an entirely new kind of freedom. This is something. Drawn into ever more and more close converse with God, the prophet is privy to the divine purposes and is thereby given the authority to enter into a unique kind of converse with men and women. Look, there's no other divine calling like it. Not the calling to preach, not the calling to teach, not the calling to lead and be a ruler. No, this is a unique, narrow slice of the community of faith. Very narrow. The reception of the gift of prophecy, the divine calling to the office of prophet or prophetess, drew the called one, as we just read, into an intense converse with God, enjoyed by no other human beings. And by the way, that's true. Even while the prophet or the prophetess is filled with very human foibles, failures, and warts. Totally, utterly human. God still draws that human into a relationship enjoyed by no other human beings. All right, stage number two. Let's go. That's stage one. Stage number two. You, you have your Bible still open to Jeremiah 1. Let's pick it up in verse 14. Jeremiah 1:14. This is stage two. Then the Lord said to me, Out of the north calamity shall break forth on all the inhabitants of the land. Verse 15. For behold, I'm calling all the families of the kingdoms of the north, says the Lord. They shall come and, oh, oh, each one set up his throne at the entrance of the gates of Jerusalem. That's not good. You don't want kings setting up their thrones. That's bad news. Against all its walls all around and against all the cities of Judah. Why are you doing this, God? Verse 16. For I will utter my judgments against them, Judah, against them concerning all their wickedness because they have forsaken me. They've burned incense to other gods and they have worshipped the works of their own hands. Stage number two, write it down. It was usually, this message entrusted, was usually a message of urgency. I mean, for Noah, it's the impending flood. Wake up! Get ready! For Moses, the impending exodus. Come on, come on, God, we got to go, 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 go. Jeremiah, I'm sorry. The whole place is going down. The exile. 
urgent. Get ready. It's coming. He's coming. How do we know the prophet's messages? Come on, Dwight. How do we know they're really, were generally urgent, meaning generally time-related? How do we know that? I'll tell you why. Because you see this book right here? This is a collection of the messages of the prophets. We got them right here. You don't have to guess. You don't have to wonder, well, what kind of a message did they send? Nope, it's right here. This book is written by prophets. How did it happen? I'll tell you what. God didn't send them a letter. No emails. You want to know how it happened? God is very clear. I'll put this on the screen for you. The divine messages were generally delivered by visions. Jot these down. By visions, by dreams, or by divine voice. And we'll take a look at that Numbers 12 in a moment. But I want to give you time to get that down. What are the ways? Visions or dreams or by divine voice. Watch this. Numbers chapter 12. Let's put it on the screen. God speaking. Then he said, hear now my words. If there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, will make myself known to him in a vision. I will speak to him in a dream. But not so. Here's another prophet. Not so my servant Moses. He's faithful in all my house. I speak with him face to face. There's the voice. I speak to him face to face, even plainly and not in dark sayings. And he sees the form of the Lord. So God says, listen, why weren't you then afraid to speak against my servant Moses? Ah, this book is a collection of 40 prophets' messages, 40 of them, written over a period, get this, 1,500 years. How do we know what their messages were? We got them right here. They're here. But for a moment, I would love to, with you, just draw the veil aside. Let's just pull this veil aside. Take a little peek into how the process really worked. This is absolutely fascinating. Some of you have never read this chapter in your life. Stay right here in Jeremiah. Go to chapter 36. This is an incredible story. Open the Bible. Just go a few chapters further to Jeremiah 36. Watch what happens here. This is going to open your eyes. Jeremiah chapter 36. Pick it up in verse 1. All right? Watch this story. Jeremiah 36, verse 1. Now, it came to pass in the fourth year of Jehoiakim, evil king, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, that this word came to Jeremiah from the Lord, saying, okay, here it comes now, verse 2. Take a scroll. Take some parchments. Will you? The parchments are all rolled up. Rolled, rolled up so that's why they call them scrolls. Take a scroll of a book. And write on it all the words that I have spoken to you against Israel, against Judah, and against all the nations from the day I spoke to you, from the days of Josiah, even to this day. You got that, Jeremiah? Remember, recall the messages I've been sending through you. I want you to now write them all down from the very beginning until this day. So what happens? Now drop down to verse 4. Then Jeremiah called Baruch. He called Baruch, the son of Neriah, and Baruch wrote on a scroll of a book at the instruction or dictation of Jeremiah all the words of the Lord which he had spoken to Jeremiah. And Jeremiah commanded Baruch saying, hey, listen, I'm confined. I'm under house arrest. I'm confined. I cannot go to the house of the Lord. I can't go to the temple. Verse six. Therefore, you go and you read from the scroll which you have written at my instruction, the words of the Lord in the hearing of the people in the Lord's house on the day of fasting. And you shall also read them in the hearing of all Judah who come from their cities. So Jeremiah remains in hiding. And Baruch takes that scroll because remember, Jeremiah has dictated the words that he from the messages he recalled from God. 
And Baruch has it. He goes to the temple. He unrolls a scroll and he starts reading the pronounced judgments of God. Some of the princes of Judah hear him. and They come to him and say, my man, give me that scroll. You, this is treasonous. You'll be, they'll kill you. Go into hiding quick. And the loyal princes take the scroll to the evil king. And they say, you need to hear these messages from God. So here's what's happening now. Verse, verse 23. So the king now is listening. Verse 23, and it happened when Jehudai, that's the reader of the scroll that was appointed, when Jehudai had read three or four columns that the king cut it with a scribe's knife and cast it into the fire that was on the hearth until all the scroll was consumed in the fire that was on the earth. Read me some more. So they, they, he dutifully reads and the king reaches over with his, with his pen knife and he goes, shh, takes it, puts, puts it right in the fire. All right, read me some more. He reads a few more columns. Gone. Goes through the entire scroll till it's all ashes. That's what I think about the Word of God coming through you boys. Now what is... He just burned the Bible up. What happens now? Watch this. Verse 27. Now after the king had burned the scroll with the words which Baruch had written at the instruction of Jeremiah, the word of the Lord came back to Jeremiah. Watch this. Saying, verse 28, Take yet another scroll and write on it all the former words that were in the first scroll which Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, has burned. So Jeremiah dutifully, look at verse 32 now. Then Jeremiah took another scroll and he gave it to Baruch the scribe, the son of Neriah, who wrote on it at the instruction of Jeremiah. Now hold on to your seat. At the instruction of Jeremiah, all the words of the book which Jehoiakim, king of Judah, had burned in the fire. Now here comes the clincher. And besides, there were added to them many similar words. Isn't that something? When Jeremiah has a chance, he has to do it all over again. He's got to dictate the, everything he can recall from every message God has ever given him since the beginning of his ministry. He says, I've got to start over, Baruch. But as he goes, he's picking up, hey, whoa, I forgot that. Let's, let's include that this time. The reason we need to see this is because we need to be reminded, whatever's going on here, this process of inspiration and revelation is a very human process as well. Everybody's clear it's divine, but it's also human, very human, dependent on the jog memory of the prophet himself. In fact, I've got to read this to you. This is at the bottom. This is the, the little note in this new Andrew study Bible for verse 32. Added, and he added many similar words. The record of God's word grows instead of diminishing. It grows. That scroll's getting bigger. What's the point? God's working through a very human memory. Oh, I forgot all about that. It was a good thing we we're writing this over, Baruch. Get this one down. Holy Spirit, more. Look, at, I know God is able to handle recalling what he needs to have recalled. But he's dependent on the human mind being able to recall it. A very human process, this business called inspiration. In fact, would you write this down, please? Divine revelation. This is in your study guide now. Divine revelation inspired a prophet's thoughts, which he then shaped into words that either he or an assistant then transcribed into the written word of God. So that's how it works. Divine inspiration inspires the thoughts. Keep writing. The Bible prophets who wrote were not God's pen. God didn't make the prophets into a giant big pen. All right, now let me just hold you straight. Okay, go. Ooh, good. No. 
The Bible didn't work that way. When God inspired the book of Genesis, it didn't go like this. All right, Moses, let's go. You ready? Ready. In, in, the, the, beginning, beginning, I, God, God, created, created. It didn't work that way. God says, let me give you a picture. Now out of that, write it down, what I've just shown you. Oh, keep your pen moving. Thus, no, let's, let's finish the sentence first. The Bible prophets who wrote were not God's pen. They were rather God's penmen. Big difference. Thus, keep your pen moving. It is not the words of the Bible that are inspired, but rather the writers of the Bible. Are you getting this? Just nod your head if you're getting this. Look, this is a critical point. There's some people running around the world who are holding up the Bible and saying, Oh, every single word, God put it right here. My friend, that's not what happened. God didn't dictate the words. Look how He did it with, look, look how he did it with Jeremiah. You tell your friend. He'll write it down. Then he'll read it. God says, I'm very dependent on this human process. I'm not just going to overpower and take it over. No, we're going to have to be in partnership here. And I need your mind to be very alert. Ah, well then, you know what? Is that how inspiration works? Yeah. Okay, then does that mean that when I get up and I feel impressed by the Spirit of God to say something, that that's inspiration? No, that's not inspiration. That's inspiring. But that is not inspiration. Not the inspiration of the prophet of God. It's a different process. The the music of the choir, whoever wrote that piece. I I got the word down. That you were singing. Whoever wrote that, that beautiful, the, 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 the music and the melody line. Boy, that was inspiring. Was it inspired? No, not like the prophets. How about you, Dwight, when you get up and preach? Are you inspired? You can just talk to Karen and ask her how much of my word around the house is canonical. <laughs> Be very clear. No, I'm not inspired. Here's how it works with me, okay, since you brought it up. Here's how it works with me. With me, God comes along and says, hey, boy, you need to be concentrating on that passage right there. That's what I think would be very appropriate for the little community that you're a part of. What he does to me is he gets me back to the inspired writings. And then he helps me pick where in the inspired collection do we concentrate on this week. So the Holy Spirit, yeah, there's a little fire that flickers in you and me. The mighty third person of the Godhead is at work. But we're not, we are not inspired like the prophets of old. No, no, no. In fact, in the Christmas story, I love this line in the Christmas story, and the Word was made, capital W Word was made, flesh. That's the truth. That's not only the truth about incarnation. That's the truth about inspiration. Totally, totally divine. Totally human. And it's blended into a divine human process so that God's capital W Word is composed of little W human words. That's how it works. Isn't that amazing? So this is why this text that we looked at last week, it makes much more sense, by the way, from the uh, uh, New International Version. This would be Second Peter chapter 1, verse 21. Fill it in in your study guide. Men spoke from God as they were 
carried along. I like that. The, the Bible that we read out of last week said moved, but I like this better. They're carried along. Why? Because it's a very much, it's very much a process. How's your memory today, Jeremiah? Because I'd like you to recall that which I have spoken to you. I'm going to jog your memory, but you're going to find out that you won't remember everything and you'll have to come back to it. God limits himself to the human's ability to communicate. I'm telling you what, guys, doesn't this say something about the God of the universe who's willing to take that kind of a risk and let us mess it up sometimes? All right. Stage one, God calls a man or a woman to deliver a divine message to his people. Stage two, it's usually a message of urgency. And by the way, as the great prophet Elijah reminds us, having a divine message doesn't mean you end up in the book with writings of your own. Was, it, was Elijah a great prophet? You bet he was taken to heaven without seeing death. A great prophet, but not a single word of his ended up in this book. John the Baptist. Jesus said John the Baptist was the greatest prophet ever born out of a woman's tummy. Did he, have, did he write one word in this book? Not a single word. So, here's the point. In fact, I wish you'd jot it, jot it down, please. Just because it didn't get written down in the canon of Holy Scripture doesn't negate the divine authority and source of the prophet's message. Never forget that line. You may recall it one day. Just because I didn't get in that book doesn't mean I, Elijah, did not have divine authority and a divine source for the words I spoke. Elijah, John the Baptist, Nathan, Noah, Abraham, and a host of other prophets never make it into the book, but they have, would anybody challenge their divine credentials and authority? Not a soul will speak a word against them. Why? Because we know it has the ring of authenticity. All right, stage number three, jot it down. The prophet responds by either protesting or acquiescing. Nobody wants the job. <laughs> when God comes to Jeremiah, go back. You kept your finger in Jeremiah 1. When God comes to Jeremiah and says, hey, I, I saw you in your mother's stomach. I'm, I'm ready for you now. Then, look at verse 6. Then said I, Jeremiah 1, verse 6, Ah, Lord God, behold, I, I cannot speak, for I am a youth. Sound familiar? Have you ever given that speech to God? God, there must be some terrible mistake. I'm getting this impression that I should be doing this. There, God, do you understand who I am? You can't mean me. I'm not going to do it. I cannot do it. Which, by the way, was precisely Moses' reaction at the burning bush. Me? <laughs> send anybody. Just don't send me. Which, by the way, in a roundabout sort of way, was Isaiah's reaction. When he gets a divine call, woe is me, for I am undone. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live in the midst of a people of unclean lips. You don't mean me for this mission, do you? No, I mean you, very human, foibled, failing Isaiah. I mean you. So Jeremiah is no exception. Nobody wants a job. Abraham Heschel, the great rabbi scholar of the 20th century, we quoted from him last week. I want to come back to his... Uh, two-book series, The Prophets. Put this on the screen. You'll need to fill it out. Fill it in. Over the life of a prophet. This is good. Over the life of a prophet are invisibly inscribed. These words are invisibly inscribed. All flattery abandon ye who enter here. You don't want the job. You're not going to get flattered in this job. Trust me. 
They're going to rip you apart. Heschel's right. All flattery abandon ye who enter here. Keep reading. To be a prophet is both a distinction and an affliction. The mission the prophet performs is distasteful to him and repugnant to others. No reward is promised him and no reward could temper its bitterness. The prophet bears scorn and reproach. Get this. He is stigmatized as a madman by his, madman by his contemporaries and by some modern scholars as abnormal. I hear it even today. Let me tell you a little bit about this, the psychosis going on here. You've got a really messed up mind. That's what's happening. Modern scholarship has written the prophets off. Heschel's right. Don't you succumb to that siren song about the gift of prophecy. Of course, they look like crazies. Look what they went through to communicate. God's Word to the likes of you and me. How tough is the job? Jeremiah, tell us how tough this job is. Jeremiah chapter 9. Tell us, Jeremy, how tough is this job? Oh, that my head were waters and my eyes a fountain of tears that I might weep day and night for the slain of the daughter of my people. Oh, that I had in the wilderness a lodging place for travelers where I, where I could run away to, that I might leave my people, for they are all adulterers, an assembly of treacherous men. The weeping prophet sobs through his 40 years of ministry. Oh, how about it? How, how painful was it, Jeremiah? Let's go to chapter 10, verse 19. Woe is me for my hurt. My wound is severe. But I say, truly, this is, a, this is an infirmity, and I must bear it. Nobody wanted the job. Stage five, write it down. The popular response generally is one of rejection. Boy, is that an understatement or what? The popular response to the message entrusted to the prophet is generally one of rejection. Listen to this heartbreaking appeal that the Lord Jesus Christ issues just before his execution. He's bearing his heart now. The gloves are off. He knows it's, oh, it's curtains. He's dead. Matthew 23. He's, he's preaching now straight to the religious hierarchy of his land and his people. Look at this. Matthew chapter 23. Jesus reminds them of their history. Therefore, you, scribes and Pharisees, are witnesses against yourselves that you are the sons of those who murdered the prophets. Therefore, indeed, I'm going to keep sending you prophets. I'll send you wise men. I'll send you scribes. Some of them you're going to kill and crucify. Some of them you will scourge in your synagogues and persecute from city to city. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I want her to gather your children together as a hand gathers her chicks under her wings. But you were not ready, willing. Aye. The mortality rate of a prophet is 100%. They all died. Except for Elijah and Enoch. But the martyrdom rate for the same prophets is nearly as high as the mortality rate. You killed. You killed them. The prophets I sent to you. Listen. 
of maniacs and fools and other such gifts. The next time you're feeling rejected because of your stand for Christ, if your roommate, she's making these little snide remarks. Your office mates, your classmates, your family rejecting you because of your stand for Christ Jesus. The next time you feel rejected, remember the words of Christ in the Beatitude. Rejoice then and be exceedingly glad, for so persecuted they the prophets who were before you. You're in good company when you're rejected for standing alone for Christ. Stage number six. Write it down. Only one more after this. Stage number six. The prophet struggles. Oh my. The prophet struggles with his mission and message. Does that happen or what? You want to talk about the great prophet? Probably the greatest outside of Christ. Many consider Moses. Discouraged Moses, struggling with his divine mission. What's the matter for you, God? And this is a direct quote from Numbers. What's the matter for you, God? Why have you afflicted me with these people? Did I conceive them? Did I bear them? Why have you made me a nursemaid to them? Kill me. Kill me now. I'm ready to go. Exact quote. Here's another one. Yo, come here. Grabs the bars of his cell. I want you to go to this Jesus of Nazareth and ask him the question. Are you the one to come? Or are we to be looking for someone else? Discourage John the Baptist with his divine mission. Discourage Jeremiah with his divine mission. This is one of the most pathos-filled pieces of sacred literature anywhere in Holy Scripture. And I want you to read it in your own Bible, and I'm not putting it on the screen. So you have to read it out of your Bible to get the impact of it. Jeremiah chapter 20. You won't find anything. You won't find a piece of literature more pathos-ridden than this. Jeremiah chapter 20. Pick it up in verse 7. Oh, Lord, you induced me. By the way, the Hebrew word for induced here is what you do when you seduce a little girl. Oh, Lord, you treated me like a little girl. You seduced me. You induced me. And I was persuaded. <laughs> you are stronger than I. And you have prevailed. You want to have an arm wrestling? Of course you win. You're stronger. I'm in derision daily. Everyone mocks me. Verse 8, for when I speak, I cry out and I shout, violence and plunder. Does it happen? No, nothing happens. Because the word of the Lord was made to me a reproach and a derision daily. Verse 9, and so then I said, I will not make mention of him nor speak any more in his name. But his word was in my heart like a burning fire shut up in my bones. And I was weary of holding it back and I could not. You have tricked me. I can't get out of this thing. The moment I quit preaching the end of the world... Jesus is not coming soon, folks. I've changed my mind. It's not happening. The moment I decide I'll never preach a sermon like that again in my life, in that moment, God, you ignite a fire, burning embers in my bones, and then I can't, I can't shut it in. You seduce me. Isn't that something? Verse 10, For I heard many mocking, fear on every side. 
Report, they say, and we will report it. All my acquaintances watch for my stumbling, saying perhaps he can be induced. Then we will prevail against him and we'll take our revenge on him. Verse, verse 11, but the Lord, oh boy, Jeremiah's getting a little more strength now, but the Lord is with me as a mighty awesome one. Therefore, my persecutors will stumble and will not prevail. They will be greatly ashamed for they will not prosper. Their everlasting confusion will never be forgotten. Verse 12, but O Lord of hosts, you who test the righteous and see the mind and heart, let me see your vengeance on them for I have pleaded my my cause before you. Sing to the Lord. Hallelujah. Here comes the very word. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord for he has delivered the life of the poor and the hand of his evildoers. But Jeremiah, almost as if he is manic depressive, builds his way back up to that soaring height. And then the very next words, he plunges into the darkest of human valleys. Look at this. Cursed, verse 14. Cursed be the day in which I was born. Let the day not be blessed in which my mother bore me. Let the man be cursed who brought news to my father saying, Hey, a male child has been born to you, making him very glad. And let that man who brought the news be like the cities which the Lord overthrew and did not relent. Let him hear the cry in the morning and the shouting at noon. Because, verse 17, he did not kill me from the womb. That my mother might have been my grave and her womb always enlarged with me. If only I had died as a fetus in my mother's uterus and remained inside of her for the rest of her life, that would have been sufficient for me. That's pretty bad. Verse 18, why did I come forth from the womb to see labor and sorrow that my days should be consumed with shame? Wow. John Goldingay, Old Testament professor at Fuller Theological Seminary. I'm reading his powerful little book, God's Prophet, God's Servant. Put this on the screen for you. Golden Gate questions. Who is this man who proclaims that God is judge and that God commits violence and outrage? Who declares God's praise and curses the day he was born? Who is as hard as a rock outside but torn apart inside? Who is he? The most extraordinary thing is that the chapter ends on that note of despair. But even more remarkable is the fact that Jeremiah's agonizing finds a place in God's book. God, in other words, accepted Jeremiah's complaints and protests and, in, and prayers for vengeance on his enemies. Final line, and boy, this, this is what gets me. God let Jeremiah batter him on the chest and implicitly encourages us to follow Jeremiah's example. Have you ever seen a little child, maybe in the supermarket, throwing a temper tantrum as little children can do and the mother comes up because the child's been denied something and the mother scoops that child up and the child is just howling and sobbing and pushes back from the mother's chest and begins to pound on the mother. Furious, you don't understand me, mother. You don't know what I've just gone through. Pounding. God, batter my chest. Batter my chest, Jeremiah. Pound on me. I'm leaving your story unedited for the world to see. I tell you what, ladies and gentlemen, it's okay to be furious with God. If you let him hold you while you batter his chest. Some of you are going through stuff that ought to make you furious. It's okay. It's okay. The God of Calvary whispers to you, been there.
batter him on the chest. You don't understand what I'm going through, God. You have no clue what my life is like. Batter him. It's okay. Isn't that amazing? Seven stages in the life cycle of a prophet, and God makes sure stage number six gets there for the likes of you and me. Final stage, number seven. Write it down. The prophet's mission and message are eventually divinely vindicated. Are eventually divinely vindicated, though by then the prophet is either martyred or has disappeared into obscurity. Isn't that sad? The last picture, look at this, guys. The last picture we have of Jeremiah, Golden, Golden Gate points this out. The last picture we have of Jeremiah in his book is of his back. It's his back. Turns from the stage of this narrative and walks away. Conscripted by a band of survivors after Jerusalem's heart-wrenching sacking, Jeremiah is led by them southward into the gathering gloom of Egypt. And in Egypt, tradition tells us, he will be martyred. Martyred. Forty years as a prophet pastor in one parish. Never took a call anywhere else. Stayed there. And in the end, it ends in obscure martyrdom. Leading von Rod, Gerhard von Rod, to reflect. This is good. It is still Jeremiah's secret. How in the face of growing skepticism about his own office, he was yet able to give an almost superhuman obedience to God and bearing the immense strains of his calling, was yet able to follow a road which ultimately led to abandonment. Ladies and gentlemen, some of you are on a road that will lead to eventual abandonment. You're not going to go up to a mountaintop and be, and be transported into eternity. You're going to end in a valley. Dark, abandoned. It's okay. Never for a moment did it occur to Jeremiah that this mediatorial suffering might have meaning in the sight of God. What you're going through, I know it doesn't occur to you now, my friend, but it may be, it may be moving the heart of God in ways you cannot understand until eternity comes. It didn't occur to Jeremiah. Again, if God brought the life of the most faithful of his ambassadors into so terrible and utterly uncomprehended a night, and there to all appearances allowed him to come to utter grief, this remains God's secret. We will never know until heaven. And that may be true about your life as well. A divine secret. By the way, fully unfolded in the life of Jesus Himself. Talking about a compliment after you're dead. Talking about a compliment after you're dead. Jesus turns to His disciples. He says, Hey, guys, guys, tell me, tell me. Who are they saying I am? And one of them puts up his hand. They say, You're Jeremiah. Come back to life. What a compliment. That the God of the universe would be mistaken for Jeremiah. For you. For me. You know what, ladies and gentlemen? That may have been the life of a prophet. But if that's true, then it surely is reason enough, wouldn't you say, for you and me to take seriously the messages of every prophet God raises up. I, I remember reading somewhere in the Bible, 
A line that goes like this. Believe in the Lord your God, and so shall you be established. Believe His prophets, and so shall you prosper. Believe. Believe. 